Thanks for choosing a 3CR podcast. Throughout June 2022, we're running our annual Radiothon when we ask you, the listener, to make a donation so that we can continue to make great radio. Your donation will help keep us community-owned and community-controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, please enjoy your podcast. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri and Bunurong country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. The Australian state runs one of the most draconian border imperialist regimes in the world. One aspect of Australia's border regime that has grown in recent decades is the education sector, which has entrapped many international students in a system of privatised exploitation and precarity. We hear from Carol from Support Network for International Students about the network and the concept of education trafficking. Later in the program, we turn to student resistance in solidarity with Palestine at the University of Melbourne. There, the student union has backlipped from historic support for Palestine in the face of reactionary backlash. We hear from Emma from Students of Palestine. But first, we hear from Carol from the Support Network for International Students. Thanks for having me on. I'm Carol. I'm um, an organiser with the Support Network for International Students, which I'm going to refer to as NIS. And it's a coalition of organizations and individuals who work collectively to advance the rights and welfare of all international students in Victoria. Um, Yeah. Cool. Thank you for that. Could you talk more about how SNES formed? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was September 2020 when the network was initiated and it was initiated by like a Filipino organization called Migrante Melbourne. It's grounded in their ongoing work regarding like a series of well-founded complaints from international students at Lawson College in Dandenong. And what Migrante has been doing um, is consulting with them and supporting students in their campaign, assisting them to set up their own organization. And yeah, I guess like part of their campaign involved putting forward a petition against the college that documents immense structural and interpersonal barriers that working class international students face. And that includes their capacity to access quality education, their rights and welfare being infringed upon and institutional gaslighting and harassment um, from the college. And I think like in terms of like sort of the principles with SNIS. Well, we understand that migrant struggles on this continent are connected to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander sovereignty and land back movements as First Nations continue to experience the brunt of Australian colonial state violence. And so we believe that, I think, migrant self-determination, justice and dignity, it requires fighting the exploitation of indentured labor of migrant workers, education trafficking of international students, detention, deportation, law enforcement, all of that, because it has its links to, you know, Australian settler colonialism and imperialism. And so being in solidarity with First Nations struggles is 
really key, I think, to migrant struggles. Awesome. Thank you for that. So following on there, you've mentioned some big concepts like education trafficking. Could you talk more about that and why why education trafficking exists? Yes. So this concept, this phrase is coined uh, by Filipino organizers at Migrante Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, in 2016, because they had their own campaign and their campaign went for like 10 years to get anywhere. But the concept of education trafficking is basically outlining a process where at multiple junctures, it seeks to exploit Filipinos and other international students who want to get out of poverty. And so the exploitation of international students, particularly at like tertiary level, like profits, immigration agents, private education providers, and employers as well. There's three main elements of of like the process of education trafficking. So the first is the the deception um, that happens in their home countries. The second is how they get sort of wrapped up in debt, debt bondage, and also workplace exploitation. But education trafficking has a historical basis as well. And specifically when it's experienced by Filipinos, it comes, it descends from um, like unfree labor practices of colonial slavery and indentureship perpetuated by white Australia, but it also continues today with the collusion of the fascist um, Duterte. Um, and I think, you know, in Australia, education being the third biggest export, a lot of international students are funneled through the system without sufficient support. And especially with the pandemic, it's exacerbated the existing exploitation of international students. Um, But I think on the Australian side um, of things, it's also been plagued by with uh, fraudulent providers since the privatization of the VET sector. So the vocational um, education and training sector. And so like in that sense, I guess education trafficking leads international students into participating in like this sort of temporary migrant or like flexible labor market. And they end up working in lucrative industries such as like agriculture, construction, hospitality, manufacturing. San Marti, um, Burma, who's immigration lawyer, has documented the way that you know, employment conditions are super punishing. Um, the buyers, visas expire and how there's like a dearth of information and language accessibility to people knowing their working rights, which then ultimately sets these communities up to be considered as permanently provisional or overtly illegal. So these students, you know, in turn are pushed to seek out work through the informal labor market. Um, and they take up con- like contract contracts of like I guess like contemporary forms of indentured and un- undocumented work to become part of you know sort of like cheap and unprotected labor. Yeah, like that's I guess sort of part of the context for how education trafficking works. Yeah, thanks for talking about. All the, all the ways that's connected and developed over time. Next, could you talk about some of the work and campaigns against education trafficking support, ne- support network for international students is involved in? 
at the current moment, the sort of campaign against education trafficking is primarily about political education and advocacy on this phenomenon. And at its heart, it's you know also about connecting with the communities who are at the center of experiencing this. The point is to build grassroots power so that, like you know, in the network we can build coalitions and work together to advance migrant self-determination, justice, and dignity. But you know, it's still early days, and we're focused on some research work at the at this moment, gathering information about international student experiences to build a report, like sort of on the proving, I guess, the the phenomenon of education trafficking in our context. Because I guess like in with like Aotearoa, they have their own report. And quite often there are like journalists who come to us asking for proof <laughs> about it. But, you know, I guess like we have to sort of establish some sort of research basis in this campaign. So this project, you know, we want to find out what concrete forms does education trafficking take here? What are the sort of like actors and institutions that contribute to student entrapment? What's the lived experiences of international students and how they're navigating this type of like chain of actors and institutions? If there are other forms of migration and labor exploitation that this is connected to, talking about the historical basis of this um, exploitation and where is intervention possible for grassroots organizing and direct action? You know, finding the weak points in the, the chain of exploitation. And yeah, I think that, you know, if anyone listening is keen to link up with SNIS as an international student or wants to support our work, you're, yeah, you're able to um, search us up on Facebook. We would be very happy to hear from you. Women's on a line. <laughs> Women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> Could you unpack further why education trafficking exists? There's this activist who's based in so-called Canada called Hasha Walia. Um, her research has been really good to read for this context. So... She says, you know, we often miss that the outsourcing of border enforcement becomes a central method in preserving imperialism. And Australia is a driver of these outsourcing policies and, you know, end up coercing different countries, including the Philippines, to accept like aid money, like offshore detention, other places, in other countries, offshore detention, ecological, you know, extraction, forced dependency, even if they're presenting this as economic partnership. I guess, you know, there's a checkered history of, I think, recognition of the imperial violences that have happened to First Nations here, South Sea Islander peoples, as well as like Papuan and um, New Guinean domestic workers. This type of history sort of points to how Indigenous and migrant labour have played an important role in establishing, you know, the, the sort of first world settler colony that Australia is today. I think settler colonialism should be considered as a form of imperialism. I think a lot of Indigenous activists do talk about anti-imperialist struggle, but there's no sort of like strong link to, I think, a sort of broader anti-imperialist movement today, in, at least in our sort of context. In, um, 
especially when I think, you know, immigration is sort of like weaponized to further indigenous genocide. And we talk about sort of imperialism and migration as like a sort of cause and effect type of driver. But yeah, like I think, you know, it's also important to think about how the Labour Party has been central to shaping Australian border policy. We might all shit on like the Liberal Party, but we have to learn from Labour's shameful record of violence and how, you know, the Australian white supremacist settler government has always created like who's a good productive legal immigrant and who can stay versus like a criminal illegal bad bad immigrant like or an apostrophes <laughs> but like labor party is the one that perfected the sort of outsourcing of border enforcement um so we don't actually see border enforcement just at the border but we see it elsewhere and this is where education trafficking comes back in again because you know it's not just that border militarization and mass detention is like normalized but it's but like capture and containment also happens in like education institutions where you know these actors involve government and aid, education and agents and colleges and TAFEs and unis and employers and you know even like accommodation providers these are like local actors that connect law enforcement to border force where there's a pipeline for expulsion and obviously this like predictably targets Africans, Asians, Muslim people, you know, which then in turn, I think there's like a sort of connection happening with how immigration policy and sort of this like tough on borders sort of thing connects to tough on crime laws. And that goes into sort of like expanding police and prisons. And, you know, like maybe one last point, but there's also the idea, I think, that there's a national sort of white working class and that erases the idea that there's like a global working class where borders facilitate the separation and exploitation of immigrant labor. And this type of like white working class sort of ideology is pretty much, you know, like part and parcel of like white supremacist left nationalism. It's, I think, a blunt class consciousness and the only way to fight back is to organize, you know, I mean, like unions need to take up, I guess, a, a sort of like stance on, on organizing for immigration status, labor protection, living wages for all workers. So as to, you know, making the divisions made by the border obsolete. Women on the line. A lot of what you've been speaking about is speaking to the role of the university as a place where the border functions and as a place of like like segmenting working class and class labor in general do you have any thoughts on what solidarity solidarity you'd like to see in this area and why institutions like the NTU are really absent in talking about education trafficking so i think first of all Universe, there's a difference between, I think, colleges, TAFEs, and universities, right? So the sort of like sandstone universities like Melbourne Uni and Monash here, they sort of bring in a certain, I mean, like, it's not, not that everyone is, you know, sort of middle class or whatever that come to these unis, but the majority of people who do 
are definitely of, I guess, like have a certain financial capacity to pay the sort of like fees that are connected to like the brand of the university. So one aspect of why, I guess, unions like NTU that sort of exist on these types of universities, branches that exist on these types of universities, this phenomenon isn't as present, perhaps. I mean, like, I think students can be wrapped up in different types of exploitation that, like, just because they're going into, you know, like a sort of, like a sort of elite university doesn't necessarily mean they won't encounter other aspects of this sort of like education trafficking chain later on after like say they after after they get out of uni and they end up having having to take on like multiple jobs to sort of pay rent pay for material sort of like needs so i would say that's one aspect there's sort of like a class um, difference between sandstone universities and you know sort of like private for-profit sort of colleges that are not sort of not really like the sort of standard of education is not really monitored at at this point in time yet Um, that's why there's heaps of fraudulent providers and sort of like the I think students get sold while they're overseas a specific idea of how their education is going to go in these colleges. But what they end up finding is that there's, you know, like the sort of like places where they're studying, like really small, there's like 50 people crammed into a room. They can not, like the Wi-Fi is really bad. And like possibly also like college admin and staff you know, they're really, they, they don't want students to switch out of their courses. So they sort of tie them up a little bit in bureaucracy and make it really hard for them, I think. And like, you know, like threaten them with deportation sometimes as well. So yeah, back to, I guess, your question. I think instead where university sort of staff unionized tends not to be in these places when where where sort of like academic staff are unionized it tends not to be necessarily at these colleges and in terms of solidarity I think it would be really important for university staff and I guess like NTU to sort of understand that these dynamics are happening elsewhere and it's you know it 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 importantly, I think, relates to how these sandstone universities work because international student fees are actually often funneled into supporting like research and yeah, like research sort of projects and interests at at these sort of like more inst- elite institutions. And yeah, so like the first thing is, I guess, for this concept to sort of be more broadly understood for people to understand that, you know, like organizing on university campuses shouldn't be just sort of isolated to their campus and sort of like isolated to interests of like increasing wage. I mean, like that's important, but I think it would be really important for unions to sort of like commit energy 
and resources to organizing in sort of like broader, more sort of like liberatory ways. Well, maybe I can add that I also think solidarity from other institutions with this phenomenon can look like supporting this project. There are, <laughs> there are opportunities to organize with us, to learn directly from, I guess, organizers who are working with international students facing these uh, struggles. Yeah, and to sort of like, I think it's important to sort of make sure it's not just about a displacement of sort of like all the attention on sandstone universities, but to make sure that, yeah, we can have class analysis where where it comes to sort of like international student struggles that leads to a sort of like broader desire for organizing around like anti-imperialism. You just heard from Carol from the Support Network for International Students. You can find Support Network for International Students on Facebook. We hope to follow up another thread on Australia's extreme border regime on a future program. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Women on the Line is produced in the studio of 3CR Community Radio, and we are currently calling for support to keep bringing radical voices to the airwaves via our June radio appeal. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. If you are able to support community radio at this time, please consider making a donation to 3CR or the local station that you are listening to us on. Next, we hear about the Palestine Solidarity Movement at the University of Melbourne. One of the calls in solidarity with Palestine is the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions of Israel Movement, or BDS Movement. The University of Melbourne Student Union passed a BDS motion earlier in a year that was recently rescinded in a reactionary backlash. We hear from Emma, from Students of Palestine at Melbourne Uni. My name's Emma. I've been a socialist activist at Melbourne Uni for some years now, and one of the co-conveners of Students of Palestine, which is a campaign group that was set up actually quite a number of years ago now that, yeah, tries to organise solidarity work with Palestine on campus and also off campus when there are protests going on in the city. Awesome, thank you. So before we go on and talk about the anti-Palestinian and anti-Palestine movement solidarity backlash, could you talk about initially initially getting a boycott, divestment and sanctions motion up at the University of Melbourne Student Union? Yeah, I think it was really uh, amazing <laughs> about a month ago when the student union voted to yeah endorse the motion that was moved by the POC People of Colour Officer Hiba and seconded by the POC Council Rep Mohammed. It included uh, a pretty um, compelling case for why yeah the student union should take up the cause of supporting Palestine, including yeah, supporting their um, struggle for justice and self-determination in any way they choose to resist apartheid, ethnic cleansing and genocide. And it also included a statement pretty clearly identifying that um, Zionism is a racist colonial ideology and a political movement justifying the settler colonial expansionist project of Israel, which means, you know, constant evictions against the um, Palestinians. 
and that this has absolutely nothing to do with, you know, Judaism and that, yeah, support for Palestine um, is pretty separate from anti-Semitism and that, yeah, we should condemn any form of anti-Semitism. And including in the kind of action part of the of the motion was, yeah, a call for the university, the university administration at Melbourne Uni to boycott all Israeli institutions and cut all ties with institutions that have connections to, to um, apartheid Israel on the campus, which I think is really important. Melbourne Uni has um, deep ties um, to yeah, various Israeli academics and institutions and also yeah, weapons manufacturers that provide yeah, weaponry to supporting yeah, the military occupation of um, Palestinians carried out by the Israeli Defense Force. So it was really a historic motion that was passed and a real step forward for student unionism for about three weeks. Yep, unfortunately it didn't last very long. Could you unpack the anti-Palestinian and Zionist backlash? So I think, well, even before the motion passed, there was, yeah, just tirade of like emails and online kind of comments and also in-person attempts at intimidation from pro-Israel individuals on campus and immense, immense pressure from sections of the labour clubs well on campus to not even table the motion for discussion in council, which is pretty disgraceful. And then following yeah, the passing of the motion, the Australian, very right-wing Murdoch media, published multiple articles, including one which called on the university to act to show students why supporting Palestine is wrong and uh, shouldn't be tolerated. And all of them, yeah, uh, smeared um, the yeah, student union as anti-Semitic for passing this motion. The university then also had a spokesperson speak to the media and it was covered in the age that they also took the same line as the right-wing press, denouncing the student union again as anti-Semitic and distanced the university administration from AMSU, the student union, and, yeah, I suppose, yeah, uh, reaffirmed their uh, deep commitment to supporting and working with and collaborating with Israeli institutions, academics, and generally, yeah, reaffirmed their support for the state of Israel. And then maybe the biggest kind of backlash, like all of this culminated into a Right-wing student who is a member of the Liberal Party here at Melbourne University has um, been in, you know, the Liberal Club, also set up the now defunct uh, Monarchist Society, to tell you something about um, this guy, Justin Rosati. Um, He initiated a class action lawsuit against the student union on the claims that by passing this political motion in support of Palestine, Amsu had acted outside of its uh, parameters of uh, covenants and um, act, acted outside of its scope of uh, what you know student unions are supposed to do, and also that by passing this motion, I'm sorry, I'd engaged in oppressive conduct because it hadn't represented, I suppose, the the views of particular students who um, actually su- support and back the the genocidal apartheid project that Israel is carrying out and has been for the last seven years. This was a pretty monumental attack on student unionism and Palestine activism on campus by smearing um, yeah, Palestinian supporters as 
yeah, uh, anti-Semitic for simply, yeah, opposing apartheid and saying that they support the struggle against, yeah, national oppression that Palestinians have been fighting for uh, for decades. It's a pretty absurd proposition to make that, yeah, constantly, constantly comes up uh, that we have to yeah, reject. And also just generally an attack on, yeah, the student union's right to, like, um, yeah, take up political positions and <laughs> take a stand with the oppressed and, yeah, have our political discussions and take up, yeah, left-wing motions and adopt, yeah, support for particular campaigns like BDS, which you know, it's boycott, divestment, sanctions against Israeli institutions modelled off of the um, sanctions that helped to be a part of the struggle that brought down South African apartheid. Yeah, so it, it lays the kind of precedence that a right-winger who disagrees with the student union can't win a vote in council, can just, you know, use their money and uh, connections to hire uh, lawyers pro bono to threaten to gag the student union at the end of the day. It's a pretty terrible legal bullying attempt to crack down on people who want to yeah, take a stand against apartheid and oppression. Women's on the line. <laughs> oh, women on the line. Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, following on from this, you've spoken a bit about how universities and governments here have close ties to apartheid Israel, including the Victorian government. Why do you think they are also rushing to adopt the anti-Palestinian IHRA definition of anti-Semitism? And how can we combat this propaganda framing? Yeah, well, I think the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism yeah, is a useful tool for Zionists, people who politically support Israel to constantly um, bring up. You know, the definition, the original definition is very brief and not very uh, objectionable. It's very straightforward, defining anti-Semitism as saying that anti-Semitism is a certain perception of Jews, which may be expressed as hatred towards Jews. And it, it goes on, but the problem or the problematic part with this is that attached to the definition are a series of guidelines, which include statements that suggest that examples of anti-Semitism include denying Jewish people their right to self-determination, for example, by claiming that the existence of a state of Israel is a racist endeavor, um, which, yeah, basically, well, yeah, lots, lots going on, yeah conflates anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel, which is a, a terrible, um, terrible kind of um, conflation to make. People who are uh, rightly trying to criticise um, the actions of the Israeli government, which, you know, according to many organisations like Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, at the United, United Nations, is, yeah, practising apartheid. And I think... There is nothing um, really anti-Semitic about criticising, yeah, all of this sort of stuff. And in terms of why exactly it is that, you know, the Victorian government, all of the, you know, mainstream political parties in, in Australia and many, yeah, prominent institutions are, you know, continuing to take up this definition. I think it's because supporting Palestine isn't simply just like supporting any other morally compelling anti-racist issue, such as supporting refugees. Israel is a key pillar of American empire and a 
key military base for America in a volatile, oil-rich and geostrategically significant region. Biden once said that if Israel didn't exist, America would have to invent it, which is actually exactly what the United Nations did in 1948 with the partition. Conflating criticism of apartheid, ethnic cleansing and genocide with anti-Semitism is really just an absurd proposition. We have to be pretty clear that this is used time and time again to tarnish Palestine supporters and is just a right-wing kind of slander that's used to undermine efforts to call attention to this human rights atrocity that is going on. You know, like across the world, multiple academics have been sacked for voicing support for Palestine on this basis. And a former leader of the British Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, a longtime anti-racist activist and supporter of Palestine, had his party membership suspended over these false charges of anti-Semitism. And the other way I think that we can start to combat this sort of like propaganda framing of denouncing any form of support for Palestine as anti-Semitic is to recognise that that ever since the Zionist movement was um, first initiated, there have always been Jewish people who have resisted that and, yeah, stridently fought against the colonial projects of the Zionists and of Israel. There's always been a long-time standing anti-Zionist Jewish tradition. Even today in Israel, um, there are plenty of young Israelis, you know, refuse to go to prison because they're conscientious objectors to conscription into the Israeli Defense Force, and they don't want to play a part as uh, being complicit in the military occupation that goes on every single day for Palestinians. And then also in the West, there are plenty of um, Jewish activists involved in BDS um, and campaign against Israel, including plenty in Australia, who just don't support the crimes against Palestinians, which Israel is founded upon. Women on the line. So where to from here? Well, yeah, lots, lots going on, yeah, in terms of Palestine solidarity work going forward. It's been really exciting and good to see that the University of Sydney, SRC, the Australian National Un- University Student Association, ANUSA, and the University of Western Australia, their guild, all three of these yeah, student unions have also adopted pro-BDS statements and come out in support of UMSU which, yeah, in the face of like a legal threat, actually have backed down and rescinded the the original motion. This is like a really incredible development that multiple student unions across the country have come out and supported this. In terms of going forward at Melbourne University, those of us on the side of Palestine are planning to pass a motion in support of Palestine and BDS again at the next council this month. We are urging all students, academics, and community supporters to email written support to the PSC department and the general secretary and president of the student union. Um, The more written correspondence we get, the better place we will be to take on the Zionists by showing how much broad support there is for Palestine and against uh, apartheid and military occupation. And I think, yeah, going forward, if this is successful, it will be a real victory for, yeah, further um, Palestine Palestine solidarity work on um, our campus. And Students for Palestine Uni Melb also have plans to carry out a kind of boycott, divestment, sanctions campaign um, 
on our campus going forward, including targeting Melbourne Uni's ties to Israeli institutions, as well as corporations that have connections to Israel. So Lockheed Martin, which is a wef- yeah, weapons manufacturer that makes special, specially made fighter jets that it sells to the IDF, um, actually has a campus dedicated to them on our a campus lab, science lab dedicated to them here that we will want to target and try and yeah, kick up a bit of a fuss around that because it is pretty outrageous that Melbourne Uni not only invests in their company but also lets them yeah have a lab where they can go about designing uh yeah weaponry that's used in this yeah uh, ethnically cleanse cleansing operation um that Israel constantly carries out and also that it funnels STEM students into aiding uh, and being complicit in yeah this colonial genocidal project so we really want to start to take on um that sort of connection that Melbourne University has to apartheid Israel going forward into next semester. Cool. Thank you so much, Emma. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. That was Emma from Students of Palestine at the University of Melbourne, who you can find on social media. That's all for this week. is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on a community radio network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And make sure to subscribe to us on your favourite podcasting app. I'm Iris Lee, tune in to Women on the Line next week on your community radio station. Did you enjoy listening to this podcast? 3CR is a community radio station, and you, the listener, are part of that community. Right now, it's our radiothon, and we need you to pitch in with a few dollars to keep the station going. We can't do it without you. It's easy. Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Your donation really matters. Help keep community strong for another year.